0: center for theological integrity this is the pastor's table today's church leaders are weary and burnt out from trying to lead in the machine of corporate leadership systems the pastor's table brings you conversations with local pastors working out deep theological convictions in their churches here are your hosts reverend tara beth leach and dr mark Quanstrom.
1: welcome again to the pastor's table i'm tara beth leach
0: and i'm mark Quanstrom.
1: And we have uh, been reflecting on soteriology, this is season three, and today we want to talk about how our practices um, shape the way the people that we are ministering to think about soteriology, how they think about uh, salvation, and how sometimes our practices are not even in line with what we think about soteriology.
0: Yeah, and this uh, this comes from a personal experience in the pastorate. Um, if I can tell that story, would that be all right? Yeah, let's hear it. So um, the tr- the tradition I'm in is a Wesleyan holiness tradition, Nazarene Church. And um, the sot- soteriology of the Wesleyan holiness movement is uh, salvation and sanctification, and not that sanctification isn't in other traditions for sure, but we tended to focus on the experience of entire sanctification. And um, we emphasized, and again, it's, this is in every Christian tradition because it's biblical and it's part of the tradition, but we tended to focus on the call to holiness. And as a consequence, we tended to minimize salvation and exalt uh, the entire sanctification. Experience, which meant that, uh, and, and I'm not commending this, um, but in our tradition, you weren't really um, a Christian until you were entirely sanctified, as it kind of was popularly understood. Um, but uh, the, the best part of that tradition um, was simply the thought that salvation, uh, the confession of faith, wasn't the end or the point, but was rather the beginning of God's work in your life. And the point of salvation was uh, sanctification, uh, that God saved us to sanctify us. And that was our, my theological tradition. And so um, we called people to continually live sensitive to the work of God in their life subsequent to their salvation experience. And we were influenced by the revivalist movement and um, the optimism of the American culture but um, the, the point for that context is our tradition um, was more a discipling tradition than an evangelistic tradition. And it's not that we didn't believe in evangelism, because we did. Um, but we called people into the church so that they might become like Christ, not so that they would sim- simply, gee whiz, as if s- getting saved could ever be simply. But it was, I think you're understanding what I'm saying. Well, so I'm pastoring this little tiny church in Southern Illinois, and um, we're kind of doing a discipleship model for church, and uh, we're growing incrementally. And um, um, the institutional leaders were interested in institutional growth, and so we would always get awards every district assembly for growing our churches. And um, so... Um, with a small church, you know, and I think I've said this, uh, we always measured our growth in percentages because it just looked so great and not in numbers. So we're growing and we're getting our awards and, um, we're paying our dues. And so, um, I mean, we're doing, we're doing fine. We're doing better than the average church. Um, but then, uh, I heard about Bill Hybels up at Willow Creek. And um, he was doing church, and I shared this earlier, in a way that I had never seen. So we made our pilgrimage to Willow Creek, and um, I listened to Bill Hybels preach every week, and I studied his methodology, and I realized that, um, gee whiz, he was reaching a lot more people than I was in my little church in Southern Illinois, and that maybe I needed to embrace some of his practices. I should maybe do church like Willow Creek. And so we began doing church like Willow Creek in southern Illinois. Now I'm not Bill Hybels, but I began mimicking Bill Hybels. And um I be I mean so we I got I I got rid of the pulpit and began preaching without a pulpit, which is kind of unusual in our tradition. And we began implementing dramas and we changed our music style. And I mean the dramas were fun. We had a great time. We began, um, be, we began becoming less churchy and basically more seeker-friendly since that's what was making a difference in the world. And uh, we did that for a while. We did that for a while, and it, it was fun, and I don't think I was ineffective at it. I wasn't as good as Bill Hyvel's was, but um, I don't think I was ineffective at it. But I was internally conflicted Uh, About it. Um, And I don't know if, I don't remember for how long we did uh, the Willow Creek model, but um, the people in the congregation were a little confused by it. Um, But they were deferential to their pastor and I was evidently wiser than they were. Um, But I was, I was internally conflicted by it. And I realized, finally realized that the reason I was internally conflicted by it was because uh, Bill Heibel's soteriology was different than the Wesleyan soteriology. Um, that in his tradition, um, uh, mm-hmm. making a confession of faith um, was the most important thing. And it was, I don't want to caricature it, but there was a greater emphasis on the transactional nature of that soteriology. And once people were saved, um, they were kind of good. And it's not that they didn't do discipleship at Willow Creek, it's just that they did not, uh, it wasn't driven by a soteriology that mandated it. Does that make sense? So, Go ahead. You want to see? see well, yeah. It? I
1: mean, I think it was 2007. They had the great reveal, right? That well, that revealed them. that their congregation uh, was a mile wide and a centimeter deep, and that spiritual formation was not, in fact, um, happening in the. I mean, at least through their there's, there's survey results, that it was not, in fact, happening in the lives of the people gathering. Credit. They were seeker Willow, sensitive.
0: Credit Willow Creek for doing that yeah. and acknowledging that. I, I, that that also commended. Uh, that that church to me as well, but what I realized was uh, what Bill Hybels was doing. His methodology uh, was perfectly designed. Uh, it, it it was his methodology flowed from his soteriology. That if you believed what Bill Hybels believed about salvation, then you would do what Bill Hybels
1: did. Yeah, get people in in the seats, get people butts in the seats, play some um, sometimes even secular music, right? Um, entertain them because you want to get them there, and then do the closure, get people to make decisions.
0: And yes, so so his methodology flowed from his from his ecclesiology and it flowed from his soteriology. Oh, for Credit sure credit Bill Hybels yep. for doing something. So my intention in mimicking Bill Hybels uh, was not because it was coherent with my soteriology. My intention in mimicking Bill Hybels was to grow a big church. Right. Right. So um, we did it for a while, and I realized that I was wearing somebody else's clothes. Hmm. Um, and for that reason, I could never do it. Like Bill Hevels did. it just didn't fit. Mm-hmm. And so the Lord was working on me pretty, pretty hard. Um, and I want to make sure I'm clear here, um, I th- I am a firm believer in theological ecumenicity.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: We need the Roman Catholics. We need the Baptists. We need the Lutherans, we need the Presbyterians. Uh, the Lord's table is richer by virtue of the theological diversity in the Christian faith. Yep. So I'm a great believer in theological diversity. Um, What I'm talking about is whether or not I was consistent with my own soteriology, and I wasn't. And the Lord was working on me, and I realized I was wearing somebody else's clothes, and I realized that I couldn't do church like Bill Hybels did if I was in the Wesleyan holiness tradition. Hmm. Um, that getting people in the church for the sake of a confession of faith was not consistent with what I said I believed. And that I needed to be in our tradition, I needed to create a church and with an ecclesiology that placed a lot more emphasis on formation than simple initial confession. And so um, I had a meeting with my leadership team. And I said, I think we're doing church wrong here. Um, Bill Habels can do it. Other churches can do it. It flows from their soteriology. I said, but... If we're going to be a Wesleyan holiness tradition, I think we have to do church different. I think we have to embrace a discipleship model. I think a discipleship model is more con- coherent with the, the Wesleyan soteriology. And so um, I we had kind of a weekend meeting with all the church leaders, and I I left it to them to decide which direction we thought they thought we should go. And they were probably better Wesleyans than I was because they weren't lured by the um, attractiveness of institutional growth. And they said, Pastor, we'd rather be um, a smaller church faithful to our theological tradition than a large church that isn't. And so we stopped. We, we changed how we did church. And I began thinking of the worship service in terms of discipleship and spiritual formation than in terms of what would get the most people here. So then I became less afraid of the church being churchy hmm. to start. Um, I realized that maybe singing a hymn was a testament to the faith I was stewarding. Hmm. And so... and. Maybe reading scripture on Sunday morning uh, was important for formation reasons. And so um, other people would say we became more liturgical. I would say we became a little bit more discipling in the worship service. Now, what's interesting about this is... um, when we became more coherent theologically and methodologically, we grew faster. There were a whole lot of willow creeks in our world. There weren't a whole lot of discipleship churches in our world. And what I discovered was that there were people hungry for a discipleship model for church. And, the character of the church began to change. Um, After about three months of introducing, and, and this is just my own personal experience. This is just descriptive. I'm not being prescriptive. Maybe I'm by virtue being descriptive, but I'm just telling you my story. When I began returning to a methodology or a worship service that was formed more by a Wesleyan Holiness theology, my people responded. The character of the church changed, and I'll I'll never forget one of the uh, one of the persons that I respected highly in the church, who had a sensitivity to the spirit. I remember one Sunday after church, she came up to me after I preached from a particularly biblical a particularly tough passage from the text that was prescribed by the lectionary. I remember her coming up to me after church and saying, finally. And I discovered that the people in my congregation anyway were hungry for a strongly preached word. And again, I want to be clear. Um, I think there are there is a place at the table for... Uh, theological diversity. Again, I think we need the Roman Catholics and the Lutherans and the Presbyterians and the non denoms and I think we need the Reformed. I mean, they, everybody brings a, a part of the Christian faith to the table that we would be poorer for not having there. Uh, this is simply illustrative of me doing church in a way that was incongruous with what I said I believed. And I started being a better pastor because my methodology was flowing from my theological convictions. Does that make sense?
1: It does. And it also, you know, makes me think that. When it comes down to it, people who are looking for churches are looking for honesty. They're looking for authenticity. They want to know, is this what you believe? Or are you wearing someone else's clothes? And you were you started leading from a place that was honest to who you are as a pastor, to how God has wired you and created you to be as a pastor and to live out honestly these deep, deeply rooted beliefs that you have about formation and ecclesiology and discipleship and what the Sunday morning gathering is all about. You had this theological conviction that the Sunday morning gathering ought to have um, transformative disciple-making power.
0: That's really interesting. I have never interpreted the ch- the change in the character of the church in the context of me being simply more authentic. Yeah. That is really and, and I am really a, a, I am real I'm saying amen to what you're just saying.
1: Hmm.
0: I mean Bill Hybels was a convictional leader.
1: Yes. And that's, mean, that that attracted did, people. Bill Hybels did Bill Hybels. People knew that what he was saying he believed, he right. meant, and they were deeply rooted convictions. Um
0: that's interesting. I interrupted you. I didn't want to interrupt. You. Well, no,
1: you start, I think that, I think what started to happen for you also, Mark, I mean, in addition to people are hungry, but you can't fool the kids. Like they're just, right. they're hungry for something real. They're looking for people to be leading them who believe in what they are doing, who would go to the wall for what they are doing. And you You'd had this incredible experience at a Roman Catholic seminary. Training. Training. And you came alive um, in understanding practices and liturgy. And you probably in the 90s, early 2000s, were one of the only Nazarene pastors following the lectionary. And even honoring the Christian calendar, because Nazarenes, I didn't know what Advent was until, <laughs> until I started hanging out with the Lutherans, right? And but you had this experience that where you your whole your world opened up, and you started to appreciate the richness of traditions, and you started to appreciate that soteri- that soteriology wasn't simply ensuring that people avoid the bad place and get to the good place. And so we've got to build everything we do around making those things happen. You tried that and it wasn't you. Yeah, You were wearing someone else's clothes. And when you started finding your stride as a pastor and being able to live into and truly pastor in ways that you believe you and your church came alive.
0: And i I think I thought on the front end that methodology was indifferent mm-hmm. to th- theology. Mm-hmm. I think I thought that you could kind of do church a bunch of different ways. Uh, and, and, and the theology didn't necessarily speak into that. Mm-hmm. On the front end, I didn't think that I was being unfaithful to my tradition by embracing the methodologies of a seeker-friendly service. Right. Um, It was only subsequent to, it was only after, I mean, I don't know how long we tried, maybe a couple years maybe. It was only then I realized, wait a minute, Um, if this is what I believe, then this is how I must practice. Um, And I think even, I would even say the origin of this of the Center for Theological Integrity came from that experience, uh, and the hunch that not enough pastors give enough attention to the whether or not their practices are coherent with their stated theological confession.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and so, um, the call to theological integrity is not to embrace a particular theological integrity; it's to be the uh, uh, Theologically integrus is that the word?
1: Yeah, and to be able to live where where there's not a gap, um, I did, I just think about like how many pastors are are pastoring with a dissonance, um, where they are, there's just this disconnect between their theological confessions and their practices, and whenever someone is living like in a place of dissonance. I think there's like an out of jointness that begins to happen. Like, think there's there's the harmony that is meant to be there in the life of the pastor and the life of the congregation is disrupted because there's a dissonance. There's a disconnect.
0: So we talked early on in this podcast about um, the Lord calling each of us uniquely to particular places at a particular time. And how um, we really can't mimic others; we have to discover what the Lord wants to do through us, right? Mm -hmm. We talked about that earlier, and you're returning us to that. I never connected it with what I was doing, but um, uh, yeah, I just want to. I want just want to say that again. Then, Uh, what if we have liberty to do church the way we would do church? in harmony with what it is we believe. What if we have that liberty, and what if the metrics that are so seductive are at the end of the day irrelevant? what What if the metrics might even be realized by virtue of being authentic proclaimers of who we are and what it is we believe?
1: You know, I don't know if I've talked about it on this episode. I know I've talked about it in other places, but this thing called spiritual authority... Okay. It's a really, really hard thing to define, but you know it when you see it,
0: right? Okay. You know
1: it when you see it. You know it when you see someone with the anointing. Um, But spiritual authority is a hard thing to define. Here's what I believe spiritual authority is. I believe that it is when there is a collision between one's authentic self and the spirit of God meaning when the Spirit of God falls upon a person and they are living into their convictions in a way that only they can do, in a way that only they can pastor, in a way that only they have been wired, I believe that we start to see this kind of authority. And so I think for pastors, oftentimes— They are feeling as though they don't have the permission to pastor in a way that they have been wired or with the convictions that they have been given or with the convictions, theological convictions that they have because they are constantly seeing exemplars um, placed on platforms and conferences who who look very corporate who are teaching a very, very corporate way, um, who are pushing very corporate metrics and models. Um, and and it's not that all of these models are bad. I mean, I do believe that some of those pastors that we're seeing, I'm, I, I've been yeah. one of those pastors on a platform before talking about this, right? Um, and at the same time, I think the problem, the breakdown is, is when these pastors who are sitting in these conferences and are looking at those guys and gals who are saying, this is how I did it and this is how you ought to do it, they go home and they put on that pastor's clothes and they try to do that. I think that we see a uh, void of spiritual authority because it's not them.
0: Well, there you go.
1: I guess I just hope that this gives pastors to follow those pastoral instincts that God has given them. Just because you haven't seen it done in the way that you keep hearing um, at conferences or the books that you're reading or the podcasts that you're listening to, this faith as we talked about uh, with, with Beth Felker Jones is embodied and God has given us pastoral instincts. And how often do we bulldoze right past those instincts because we've never seen it done that way or because um, the models uh, that, we are, that we are constantly seeing or being presented to or the metrics that we think that we need to perform. We think that, well, if I pastor in, li- in the way that, um, that God has wired me or with these pastoral instincts, then I won't get the output and the metrics. But what if that's just completely wrong? What if God is, is calling up people to pastor in an only way that they can and that people who gather every single Sunday, they want to see the authority of God alive in their pastors, no matter what style that is. they That pastor might right. be preaching a sermon that's very um, emotive. Right. Or... That pastor might be standing there with their hands in their pockets. Right. Both can have spiritual authority.
0: Yes. Yeah. So we're to trust that God has called us. Yeah. To be us called. Mm-hmm. And that goes back to what I said. And I really, th- this is a conviction of mine. One of the reasons I love being at Northern is because, um, well, lots of reasons. Uh, They take the Bible seriously, which is important. And even, but with that, there's a theological diversity at Northern. So we have Anglican profs and UMC profs and Christian Missionary Alliance prof and Nazarene prof. And uh, there's got to be a Baptist prof somewhere in that group. It's a Baptist seminary. (laughs) But we're brothers and sisters in Christ and... The UMC brings, the Methodist brings something to the table. Christian Missionary Alliance, the Anabaptists bring something to the table. Uh, the Anglican brings something to the table. And so uh, maybe we are robbing the church of its richness by not being who God has called us to be.
1: Yeah, I think so. And by ignoring our theological convictions. And again, these, these theological convictions aren't, just well, God told me, right? We're we're. This right. is like the Wesleyan, Wesleyan quadrilateral here, right? Like there are so many things um, that shape our theological convictions, right. tradition and right. scripture and on. Um, but at the same time, um, you know, pastors go to seminary. We um, we come to our convictions and conclusions, and then somehow over time we start learning about these different models and we start. We just start forsaking them. And we stop being integrous to the things that we believe to our bones.
0: So, um, be who God has called you to be, driven by the theological convictions that you hold dear. Mm -hmm. I firmly believe that we can be respectful and honoring of those who have other Mm -hmm. theological convictions. We all see through a glass darkly. I don't think holding convictions strongly is contradictory to to humility. I think we can be humbly uh, embracing of our convictions strongly. We can be respectful of those and still exercise the gifts and the calling and preach lead out of the theological convictions that uh, we have. So maybe what God is calling us to is to be who God has called us to be. Um. And because we see, all of us see through a glass darkly, I don't think that holding dearly to our particular theological convictions means we are necessarily disrespectful of those who hold other theological convictions. I think we're called to hold to our convictions with humility. Yeah. So I could never be a Roman Catholic for lots of reasons. But for that reason, I don't say... ...that the Roman Catholics shouldn't be doing what Roman Catholics are doing. Right. We need... It is the Bible that exalts Mary, not the Roman Catholics. We need that... We need a tradition in the Christian faith to affirm the fleshness of the sacrament. We need the confessor role of the priest as a part of the Christian faith... Now, I couldn't be Roman Catholic, but I certainly can respect that theological tradition, because it makes the Christian faith richer mm-hmm. and deeper. Mm-hmm. Um, so, pastors, be who God has called you to be, and practice out of a theological practice out of your theological tradition. That, I guess that would be the yeah. call today, yeah. right? The, yeah, the message.
1: Yep. So be honest. Be honest with the things that you believe. Be honest with who God has created you to be. And out of that honesty, as the Spirit of God falls upon you, as the Spirit of God drenches your heart and mind, may that lead to spiritual authority. May that lead to flourishing. May that lead to... A ministry that maybe, most definitely, does not look like the ministry of the other church, the bigger church, the smaller church, whatever church down the street. Um, but it's but it's honest. Why? Because you are called. You are called um, in a particular tradition. You are called um, as you are with the personality with the. Um, traits that you have you are called and so as a spirit of god falls on you may you preach in a way that only you can may you teach in a way that you only can may you lead in a way that you only you can and may you pastor in a way that you only can but may you do it in honesty holding to those theological convictions and so thank you so much for listening into the pastor's table um We pray that this blesses you. Send this to another pastor uh, if it does encourage you. And so may the Lord bless you and keep you uh, as you continue on in the gifts and the graces of this incredible call that we have. It is a gift. It is a gift. And until next time, my friends, thanks for listening.